Magic Without Fears Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. So I thought I was done with the C.W. Leadbeater book on uh, clairvoyance, but I was looking through more of it, and as, you know, as much as I don't really enjoy some of the uh, ideas and language use that... Um, are made use of in archaic literature. I uh, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater, and the baby is always human experiences. So he has a chapter, the last chapter, on methods of development, and I think that's interesting, and it'll definitely, at the very least, uh, let me uh, express my thoughts on some ideas which I think should be left behind and comment on some nuggets that are worth pursuing in our own time and place. Um, so with that said, let's dive into uh, some writing from an age where there was still a love for the Aryan race um, and where all humans were described by the powerful and massive word of man. Yes, man. For man is everything, man is all, we are all man. <laughs> when a man becomes convinced of the reality of the valuable power of clairvoyance, his first question usually is, how can I develop, in my own case, this faculty, which is said to be latent in everyone? And that's an excellent beginning place, right? So one of the biggest problems I have with the, the psychic talk going on these days is, People in even coming to me in magic are saying, I, I don't know if I'm if I'm special or if I just want to be special or what this means or anything. And I really do go always go back to Rudolf Steiner's point, which was that we have the same abilities. No one's special, but you can make yourself special because you are special. And that's up to you. How you develop your life, how you develop who you are what kind of virtues you build up in yourself, what kind of values you promote in the world. These are the things that make us special to each other, right? We consider someone special when not only do they commit themselves to tasks and goals, 
but when they can pursue those tasks and goals with passion and ambition and not become a complete douche in the process, that makes someone pretty special because a lot of people tend to forget everyone else around them when they're in pursuit of their dreams and desires. Now, the fact is that there are many methods by which it may be developed, but only one which can be at all safely recommended for general use, that of which we shall speak last of all. Among the less advanced nations of the world, the clairvoyant state has been produced in various objectionable ways. Oh, do tell what are objectionable ways to develop clairvoyance. If you remember from some earlier uh, delvings into this text, some of the objectionable ways are the what he called the oriental ways, which uh, can only function when the orientals are under the intoxicating effects of some sort of uh, potion or drug concoction. Yes, because those human beings can't develop clairvoyance, which he himself says is a latent in everyone without the use of drugs. I mean, <clears throat> yeah, these are, uh, these are some not really very beautiful ways of thinking about people and quite hypocritical. Really, really powerful lessons for us to remember today because you can, you can easily look at these older... Uh, angles on bigotry, but not miss the version of it that exists today, right? You see, like, anytime you're saying, oh, no, well, they didn't do this and that the same way I did this and that, and therefore their results or experiences are are less valid or profound or, or ranked less nobly, beware, beware, because you can see how that thinking leads 100 years ago into some other really bad ways of thinking. Among the less advanced nations of the world, the clairvoyant state has produced in objectionable ways. Among some of the non-Aryan tribes of India, by the use of intoxicating drugs or the inhaling of stupefying fumes. Among the dervishes, by whirling in a mad dance of religious fervor until vertigo and insensibility supervene. Oh my God, I, I, I had some very, very dear dervish friends and classmates and parents in, in, in my uh, high school, actually, and they were some of the m- most amazing people I met, um, and I think very highly of the Dervish practice, but the fact that he's referring to their ecstatic da- dance as uh, as as this uh, really abominable way of developing psychical or uh, ecstatic experiences... <laughs> Oh, gosh. And then he says, Among the followers of the abominable practices of the voodoo cult by frightful sacrifices and loathsome rites of black magic. Clearly, they didn't know much about what voodoo was. And I'm sure they didn't go to Haiti and, you know, study the actual native religion as it is a beautiful blend of of what came out of other parts of the world mixed with Catholicism into its own hybrid of, of religion and mystical occult practice. It's a very beautiful practice. Read Maya Darren's Divine Horseman if you want a really nice look at, at Voodoo religion and spiritual practice. It's one of my absolute favorites. And if you can't learn something from about spiritual experience from the Voodoo mounting practices, well then, I don't even know what we're doing here, seriously. I mean, it's not all Serpent and the Rainbow. Well, maybe it is, the book, not the movie. The movie's fun, but different. Methods such as these are happily not in vogue in our race. (laughs) 
He's like, thank God we're not doing our own ecstatic, mind-altered, loathsome practices to develop ourselves spiritually. Well, he wouldn't like the trends these days with all the demonolatry or demonolatry that's popular. Uh, yet even among us, large numbers of dabblers in this ancient art adopt some plan of self-hypnotization, such as the gazing at a bright spot or the repetition of some formula until a condition of semi-stupefaction is brought, is produced. While yet another school among them would endeavor to arrive at similar results by the use of some of the Indian systems of regulation of the breath. So Steiner was also against regulation of the breath. Leadbeater might have been as well. But, wow, this is some serious, uh, this is some serious perspective <laughs> from this uh, old dead white pederast dude. All these methods, yeah, I'm wondering why I'm doing this now, but, but I'm sure there'll be a reason. We'll find out together. All these methods are unequivocally to be condemned as quite unsafe for the practice of the ordinary man. <laughs> so I love that. Hey, we could totally flip this on its head and be like, the problem is men can't handle these ecstatic forms of dervishness and, and voodooism. And uh, <laughs> I'd love to see it that way, but that's not what he means, of course. Uh, dear Lord, the ordinary man who has no idea of what he's doing, who is simply making vague experiments in an unknown world, even the method of obtaining clairvoyance by allowing oneself to be mesmerized by another person is one form from which I would shrink myself with the most decided taste. And assuredly, it should never be attempted under, except the exact conditions of absolute trust and affection between the magnetizer and the magnetized, and a perfect perfection of purity in heart and soul, in mind and intention, such as is rarely seen among any but the greatest of saints. Sure. Experiments in connection with the mesmeric trance are of the deepest interest, as offering, among other things, a possibility of proof of the fact that clair of clairvoyance to the skeptic. Yet, except under the conditions as I have just mentioned, conditions I quite admit almost impossible to realize, I should never counsel anyone to submit himself as a subject for them. Wonderful. Curative mesmerism, in which, without putting the the patient into the trance state at all, an effort is made to relieve his pain, to remove his disease, or to pour vitality into him by magnetic passes, stands on an entirely different footing. Let us always remember it's very important to make sure that what you're doing is right, but what everyone else is doing is wrong. That's a very, very important thing to becoming a spiritual master, right? Mm-hmm. Totally. And if the mesmerizer, even though quite untrained, is himself in good health and animated by pure intentions, no harm is likely to be done to the subject. In so extreme a case as that of a surgical operation, a man might reasonably submit himself to the mesmeric trance, but it is certainly not a condition with which one ought to lightly experiment. Yeah, I'll take anesthetic, thank you. Indeed, I should most strongly advise anyone who did me the honor to ask for my opinion on the subject not to attempt any kind of experimental investigation into what are still, to him, the abnormal forces of nature, until he has first of all read carefully everything that has been written on the subject, or, which is by far the best of all, until he is under the guidance of a qualified teacher. Yeah, I mean, 
coming out of the Victorian age and into the 20th century, we were still big on this whole qualified teacher thing. And I'm big on it to an extent, but let's keep our eyes open, okay? But where, it will be said, is the qualified teacher to be found? Oh, not most assuredly among any who advertise themselves as teachers, who offer to impart so for so many guineas or dollars the sacred mysteries of the ages or whole developing circles to which casual applicants are admitted at so much per head. Yeah, absolutely. Um. <laughs> much has been said in all this treatise of the necessity of careful training and of the immense advantages of the trained over the untrained clairvoyant. But that again brings us back to the same question, whether... Where is this definite training to be had? So you can still see at some point, in, in many ways, this was still a, an advertisement for the Theosophical Society, which had a very distinct way of seeing things, shall we say. I'm not particularly a fan of the Theosophical Society, but <clears throat> as I've said, there's value to looking at these older texts and uh, really investigating and exposing some of the biases and uh, even bigotry that we find in them. Again, I, I, I'm not one for believing we should burn books and shy away from uh, older problematic models of thinking. Rather, we should understand them, look at them, see how people got there, and make sure we don't repeat those own patterns in our own world. Because when you repeat those patterns, it doesn't look the same. And this is something to be said about clairvoyance. See, I can tie this into some fancy developmental clairvoyance pedagogy for you because old patterns of thinking develop and recur in ways that you don't recognize them often unless you're looking at the pattern instead of the content. If you're looking at the content, you'll think, oh, this is massively different. For example, we look at Nazi Germany and we look at things going on today and we say, oh, no, this is not like that because that, that had this and this doesn't have that. But it's like, no, you're not seeing the pattern. Look for the patterns, the structures below the content, right? Not the graphics and the skin of the website, but the structure upon which it's based. For example, actually, a good point in teaching about teaching and, and charging is there's two different kinds of groups out there. Ones that let you in for free, and they might not take you into the culty mentality that that you might think, but they might just gouge you and, and uh, you know, to stay in the group, you have to give whatever they want whenever they want it at a certain point later on. That's a very common thing. Oh, our group is free. You see this with commune life, right? Um, you join a commune or intentional community and everything's fine and then something's needed. So you give what is needed, but then you never get it back. And that's the price you pay as opposed to other models, which you see becoming more popular today, where there's more distinct, here's the cost up front, that's it, and these are the rights and privileges you get in our group from that. I'm a, a bigger fan of the transparent model than the, uh, oh, just join our, our friendly and free community of good people and trust that everything will be on the up and up. That's uh, That tends to be a little bit more sketchy for me than having a vows and contracts at the get-go and if someone on either side breaks those you reevaluate the relationship right if you take a vow in a group and you see someone in that group at the in the leadership break that same vow you took 
maybe you shouldn't be part of that group. Maybe that's a, a group without integrity or the leadership is flawed and you should move on because otherwise you might be called to sacrifice your own integrity at a certain point. So again, clear agreements and guidelines are a helpful thing. It's not always better to be part of just a very a free and open sort of spiritual group that asks of nothing on the surface except for your membership and commitment and then later on comes the rub. But Leadbeater says, the answer is that the training may be had precisely where it has always been to be found since the world's history has begun, at the hands of the great white brotherhood of adepts, which stands now, as it always has stood, at the back of human evolution, guiding and helping it under the sway of the great cosmic laws, which represent to us the will of the eternal it's easy to think that Leadbeater is talking about a specific group of spiritual beings. In the Kabbalah, you might consider in some Western forms of Kabbalah the idea of the ascended masters to be the, the angelic order of the Ishim, the holy living ones, or the human souls that have evolved enough to uh, maintain their bodies of light on the astral plane after death. You could also see it as, as the white lodge versus the black lodge of, of discarnate souls that have left this world and then are doing good or ill based on what their uh, predilections and behaviors were in life. You could see it as spirits that have never been incarnate holding court essentially in, in some higher planes. You could think that these are the Pleiadians or beings from other galaxies or dimensions that have our best at heart. Or you could see this whole idea of the, the Great White Brotherhood of Adepts as being simply the secret stream, as Rudolf Steiner would call it, the, the perennial wisdom that flows through all time, which you can either tap into or not tap into. You can either represent it or you cannot represent it. So there's a lot of ways that they had of, of defining this platonic notion that there was this, this body of enlightened spiritual beings out there. Um, essentially, the ideas are all the same. Secret masters, secret adepts, Mahatmas, great white brotherhood. All these ideas are um, essentially the same. And, uh, yeah, I think it's dangerous, though, to believe that any group or person has connection to a specific, um, what do we call them, extraterrestrial um, form of, of divine masters that you can't access except through them. Beware of people who say you can only access these beings through us. At the same time, that doesn't mean that you necessarily will um, have the same connections or find the same guides that someone else will find, and that's okay. You should find your own, right? But how, it may be asked, is access to be gained to them? How is the aspirant thirsting for knowledge to signify to them his wish for instruction? Once more, by the time-honored methods only, there is no new patent whereby a man can qualify himself without trouble to become a pupil in that school. That's a fair point. I mean, yeah, if you think you can just, you can't just buy a crystal ball, say, I want to find, like, the masters of the universe, and then whatever thoughts pop in your head, just ascribe that to them. That is, that is a way of madness. Um... He says, no royal road to the learning which has to be acquired in it. And that actually leads us to why we're reading this text. I, we are looking at the stuff that came before us so that we can, you know, hopefully uh, not make the same mistakes that uh, our 
predecessors did. At the present day, just as in the mists of antiquity, the man who wishes to attract their notice must enter upon the slow and toilsome path of self-development. There's a fact. <laughs> must learn, first of all, to take himself in hand and make himself all that he ought to be. As Rufus Opus would say, if you don't own a house and a car, that's your great work. <laughs> the steps of the path are no secret. I have given them in full detail in Invisible Helpers, another book, so I need not repeat them here. But it is no easy road to follow, and yet sooner or later all must follow it, for the great law of evolution sweeps mankind slowly but resistlessly towards its goal. That was apparently a word, resistlessly. Don't use that in your essays today, kids, though. I'm sure it'll get you a, a red mark. From those who are pressing into this path, the great masters select their pupils, and it is only by qualifying himself to be that a man can put himself in the way of getting the teaching. Sure. Without that qualification, membership in any lodge or society, whether secret or otherwise, will not advance his object in the slightest degree. I love that idea, actually. If you're not making that personal effort to connect with your own true self, your higher self, your uh, eventually maybe even your holy guardian angel, depending on how you see that being, then groups and badges and certificates and qualifications will not help you at all if you're not making the personal effort by yourself. It is true, as we all know, that it was at the instance of some of these masters that our Theosophical Society was founded, and that from its ranks some have been chosen to pass into closer relations with them. But that choice depends upon the earnestness of the candidate, not upon his mere membership of the society or the body within it. Of course, this is a reference to Helena Petrovna Blavatsky connecting with her Mahatmas as her secret masters and gurus who were apparently physically in India but contacting her spiritually. And this was then uh, a major scandal when it was proven that there were no physical people where she said there were and she was making up the letters that they wrote to her herself. Which is sad because she didn't need to do that. She, she was bolstering herself beyond herself and she could have just really done the spiritual work to become herself rather than put on these airs or make up these gurus that she had spiritual connection with. Because um, that, that bit her in the ass, didn't it? And uh, better to just be congruent with who you actually are. And, you know, it's just say it comes from the spirit. Like, where I could, what's wrong with the good old Western Christian Christian or Jewish mysticism? Or I, this would be an Arab mysticism as well that just says, oh, the spirit told me. Just the spirit. Well, there's, we have nature, we have spirit. Why can't nature and spirit communicate this to us? Why do you need a secret master? Why do they need to be in India? Why do they need to be spiritual discarnate entities that are temporarily in a body or maybe always in a body but or both? And it gets super confusing and super weird and, and definitely leads to this kind of guru worship and cultism that we don't need in our world anymore. That then is the only absolutely safe way of developing clairvoyance, to enter with all one's energy upon the path of moral and mental evolution, at one stage of which this and other of the higher faculties will spontaneously begin to show themselves. That's a, that's, that was actually my experience. Um, it was a conscious effort that I started making in my life, um, coming out of the meditation of Maharishi and transcendental meditation of my childhood into my preteens and early teens practicing Wicca and Druidry and 
making a very distinct mental choice to expand my senses and doing exercise to expand my senses um, and that and be a better person. I stopped, you know, I asked some advice. I was told to stop drinking carbonated beverages. So I did that. I was told to eat mostly fruit. I did that. And I wanted to develop my, you know, super senses as Steiner would call them. And it worked. The commitment and devotion to the higher faculties and that path of evolution is a bad word for it, but development for sure. And understanding of subtle technologies that worked. That is how it happened. Yet there is one practice which is advised by all the religions alike, which, if adopted carefully and reverently, can do no harm to any human being, yet from which a very pure type of clairvoyance has sometimes been developed, and that is the practice of meditation. Well, anyone who tells you that you don't need to meditate to develop spiritually is, is I think, very misguided. Um, the question is, how many types of meditation do you consider meditation? Today, the category is very broad. Earlier, You can see, though, from Leadbeater's own writing that earlier he was critiquing staring at a point or things like that. So basically discounting, discounting all of Eastern practice, which is ironic given the whole Eastern thing in the Theosophical Society. But he's, you know, basically subtly dissing Zen or Zazen practices, uh, moving Zen, or any or half the practices even in the West from contemplative prayer or what we consider Teze prayer today to um, centering prayer and other practices that all developed around and are represented by books like The Cloud of Unknowing. Let a man choose a certain time every day at a time which when he can rely upon being quiet and undisturbed, though preferably in the daytime rather than at night, and set himself at that time to keep his mind for a few minutes entirely free from all earthly thoughts of any kind whatever, and when that is achieved, to direct the whole force of his being towards the highest spiritual ideal that he happens to know. Wow, see, that is amazing and very clear and very accurate. That is exactly what my diary entries from... 94 to 1996 show led me to take steps forwards by leaps and bounds, actually. He will find that to gain such perfect control of thought is enormously more difficult than he supposes. Yes, it is. But when he attains it, it cannot be but in every way most beneficial to him. And as he grows more and more able to elevate and concentrate his thought, he may gradually find that new worlds are opening before his sight. As a preliminary training towards the satisfactory achievement of such meditation, he will find it desirable to make a practice of concentration in the affairs of daily life, even in the smallest of them. If he writes a letter, let him think of nothing else but that letter until it is finished. If he reads a book, let him see to it that his thought is never allowed to wander from his author's meaning. You see here actually something very similar to this in Franz Barden's De Weg zum Wachen Adept in the Initiation into Hermetics, which is the worst translated title ever. Maybe next to uh, Legends of the Fall being in German, Legenda der Leidenschaft, Legends of Passion. Or Love Has Two Faces. The Mirror Has Two Faces in German was Liebe hat zwei Gesicht. So Love Has Two Faces. Taking a magical sort of surreal title like The Mirror Has Two Faces and changing it to Love Has Two Faces and Legends of the Fall to Legends of Passion is very emblematic of the German 
mind, you could say. It's like, that's ambiguous, that's unclear, we're going to make sense of it. Yes. Of course, then there's German poets who, you know, say things like, a fairy tale comes to me from ancient times, but not out of the senses, senses, you know. That is truly surreal. But anyway, where were we? Can you tell? I got interrupted by Chris and Mark in the last few minutes. Okay. What were we talking about? Yeah, something. Magic? Clairvoyance. Oh, right. Friends, Barden, you need to pay attention. Valentin Tomberg and Meditations on the Tarot is talking about the same thing as this, like, pay attention to what you're doing. It's, it's the power of now. If you read a book, let yourself be focused on reading that book. He says he must learn to hold his mind in check and to be the master of that also, as well as of his lower passions. He must patiently labor to acquire absolute control of his thoughts so that he will know always exactly what he is thinking about and why so that he can use his mind and turn it or hold it still as a practiced swordsman turns his weapon where he will. Yet after all, if those who so earnestly desire clairvoyance could possess it temporarily for a day or even an hour, it is far from certain that they would choose to retain the gift. True, it opens before them new worlds of study, new powers of usefulness, and for this latter reason, most of us feel it worthwhile. But it should be remembered that for one whose duty still calls him to live in the world, it is by no means an unmixed blessing. Upon one in whom that vision is opened, the sorrow and the misery, the evil and the greed of the world press as an ever-present burden, until, in the earlier days of his knowledge, he often feels inclined to echo the passionate adjuration contained in those rolling lines of Schiller's. <laughs> oh, of course he's going to quote a German poem now. How, how apropos of my stoned rant just before. What's more pretentious than, of course, some British clairvoyant citing a German poem, but only in German. I don't think he provides the translation. Oh, what a douchebag. The only thing douchier than that would be reading the whole German poem well. Din Orakal zu verkünden, warum warfest du mich hin? In die Stadt der ewig Blinden, mit dem aufgeschlossenen Sinn. Kommt's den Schleier aufzuheben, wo das Nahe Schrecknichts droht. Nur der Irrtum ist das Leben, dieses Wissen ist der Tod. Nimm, o oh nimm, die Trauge, Klarheit mir vom Augenblütgen Schein. Schrecklich ist es deiner Wahrheit, sterbliches Gefäß zu sein. Which may perhaps be translated, Why hast thou cast me thus upon into the town of the ever-blind to proclaim thine oracle by the open sense? What profits it to lift the veil where the near darkness threatens? Only ignorance is life. This knowledge is death. Take back this sad, clear-sightedness. Take from mine eyes this cruel light. It is horrible to be the mortal channel of thy truth. Well, that is a translation. I'll do my own some other time. I'll post it for you guys. 
And again later he cries, Give me back my blindness, the happy darkness of my senses. Take back thy dreadful gift. Yeah, German poetry fucking rocks. But this, of course, is a feeling which passes. For the higher sight soon shows the pupil something beyond the sorrow. Soon bears in upon his soul the overwhelming certainty that whatever appearances down here may seem to indicate all things are without shadow of doubt working together for the eventual good of all. That's a positive message. He reflects that the sin and the suffering are there whether he is able to perceive them or not, and that when he can see them he is after all better able to give efficient help than he would be if it were working in the dark. And so by degrees he learns to bear his share of the heavy karma of the world. See, I'm glad I read this. There's some, I'm not a, karma aside, or tikkun olam aside, seeing farther shows you more darkness, more demons. Digging into yourself, whether it's through therapy or self-help or spirituality or whatever your path may give you, you have to take the path to the end. You can't just keep starting new paths when the darkness of the path you're on rears its ugly head. You can't just give up and go away. The whole myth of fighting the dragon is exactly that. You've got to conquer the dragons and the demons and the challenges on the path you've chosen and not just give up and run off to the shiny new object of a new path. I mean, you might think you're mastering different systems, but are you? Or have you failed to even complete the one you're on, let alone add new and insightful contributions from the extent that you have walked farther than others on your own way up the mountain? So, there is that. Some misguided mortals... There are who, having the good fortune to possess some slight touch of this higher power, are nevertheless so absolutely destitute of all right feeling in connection with it as to use it for the most sordid ends, actually even to advertise themselves as test and business clairvoyance. Hmm. Needless to say, such use of the faculty is a mere prostitution and degradation of it. Oh, dear showing that its unfortunate possessor has somehow got hold of it before the moral side of his nature has been sufficiently developed to stand the strain which it imposes, says the pedophile. I can't believe this pedophile is moralizing to us. A perception of the amount of evil karma that may be generated by such action in a very short time changes one's disgust into pity for the unhappy perpetrator of that sacrilegious folly. So it's like he sort of has a good idea of where things ultimately need to end up in the world, but his path to them is pretty messed up. But his points about you know, dedication and focus and commitment, those are valid points. So, you know, was it necessary to get to them by going through C.W. Leadbeater? Who cares? We're doing it anyway. It is sometimes objected that the possession of clairvoyance destroys all privacy and confers a limitless ability to explore the secrets of others. These people were nuts. No doubt it does confer such an ability, but nevertheless, the suggestion is an amusing one to anyone who knows anything practically about the matter. 
Such an objection may possibly be well-founded as regards the very limited powers of the test and business clairvoyant. But the man who brings it forward against those who have had the faculty opened for them in the course of their instruction and consequently possess it fully is forgetting three fundamental facts. This should be good. First, that it is quite inconceivable that anyone having before him the splendid fields of investigation which true clairvoyance opens up could ever have the slightest wish to pry into the trumpery little secrets of any individual man. Secondly, even if by some impossible chance our clairvoyant had such indecent curiosity about matters of petty gossip, there is, after all, such a thing as the honor of a gentleman. Yes, of course there is. Oh, now we're getting to the good stuff. Which, on that plane, as on this, would, of course, prevent him from contemplating for an instant the idea of gratifying it. And thirdly, in case, by any unheard of possibility, one might encounter some variety of low-class pitry with whom the above considerations would have no weight. Full instructions are always given to every pupil. As soon as he develops any sign of faculty as to the limitations which are placed upon its use. So we are all instantly given the moral guidelines of how to use these magical powers if and should when they ever be gained. Right. Okay. Wow, this is entertaining. Put briefly, these restrictions are that there shall be no prying, no selfish use of the power, and no displaying of phenomena. It's not dissimilar to uh, sort of the rules that you follow, you know, from yourself above. But that is to say that the same considerations which would govern the actions of a man of right feeling upon the physical plane are expected to apply upon the astral and mental planes also. That the pupil is never under any circumstances to use the power which his additional knowledge gives to him in order to promote his own worldly advantage, or indeed in connection with gain in any way. And that he is never to give what is called in spiritualistic circles a test, that is, to do anything which will incontestably prove this to skeptics on the physical plane that he possesses what to them would appear to be an abnormal power. So this guy's saying, if people want you to prove it, you can't. So, sounds like what someone would say who can't prove something. <laughs> With regard to this latter proviso, people often say, but why should he not? It would be so easy to confute and convince your skeptic, and it would do him good. Such critics lose sight of the fact that, in the first place, none of those who know anything want to confute or convince skeptics, or trouble themselves in the slightest degree about the skeptic's attitude one way or the other. Yeah, that may be true. At the same time, the people I know who can do things have had no problem demonstrating them. They're like, yeah, here you go. And in the second, they fail to understand how much better it is for the skeptic that he should gradually grow into an intellectual appreciation of the facts of nature, instead of being suddenly introduced to them by a knockdown blow, as it were. But the subject was fully considered many years ago in Mr. Sinnott's occult world, and it is needless to repeat again the arguments there adduced. Truly. 
It is very hard for some of our friends to realize that the silly gossip and idle curiosity which so entirely fill their lives of the brainless majority on earth can have no place in the moral real life of the disciple, and so they sometimes inquire whether, even without any special wish to see, a clairvoyant might not casually observe some secret which another person was trying to keep in the same way as one's glance might casually fall upon a sentence in someone else's letter which happened to be lying open upon the table. Of course he might, but what if he did? The man of honor would at once avert his eyes in the case as in the other, and it would be as though he had not seen. So, a highly developed, reputable, honorable psychic, if they did see something they weren't meant to or know something they weren't meant to, they would never let it matter to them. The things these people cared about, I must say, are rather different, and their pretenses are completely alien. If objectors could but grasp the idea that no pupil cares about other people's business, except when it comes within his providence to try to help them, and that he has always a world of work of his own to attend to, they would not be so helplessly far from understanding the facts of the wider life of the trained clairvoyant. But one of the things he is saying here is like, look, if you can really actually have spiritual visions, like you shouldn't get up in a restaurant and run over to some girls sitting at a table and tell one of them that she's going to burn in a fire because you just saw it and you don't know her from Adam. And I've seen people do that, exactly that. And under the auspices that they had some spiritual vision or some psychic flash. And I think that is, uh, like my friend, uh, fellow Canadian Sabrina would say, abusive to all parties involved, and the spirit maybe even. Even from the little that I have said with regard to the restrictions laid upon the pupil, it will be obvious that in very many cases he will know much more than he is at liberty to say. I mean, sure, there's things that we've all been taught that we've never taught anyone. And then there's like the adept practices of like putting things divided between three sources or places so that you have to pay, see all three to get the full picture. And I do that regularly, of course. We all, we all do. Even from the little that I have said with regard to the restrictions laid upon the people, um, that is, of course, true in the far wider sense of the great masters of wisdoms themselves. And that is why those who have the privilege of occasionally entering their presence pay so much respect to their slightest word, even on subjects quite apart from the direct teaching. For the opinion of a master, or even one of his higher pupils, upon any subject is that of a man whose opportunity of judging accurately is out of all proportion to ours. Oh, Lord. His position and his extended faculties are in reality the heritage of all mankind, and far though we may now be from those grand powers, they will none the less certainly be ours one day. Yes, like Jesus said, you will have even greater powers than I, and we will all walk on water and fly through the air. It's a fact, it's science. Yet how different a place will this old world be when humanity as a whole possesses the higher clairvoyance? Oh, I love theosophists. Think what the difference will be to history when all can read the records, to science when all the processes about which now men theorize can be watched through all their course, to medicine when doctor and patient alike can see clearly and exactly all that is being done, 
to philosophy when there is no longer any possibility of discussion as to its basis, because all alike can see a wider aspect of the truth. To labor when all work will be joy, because every man will be put only to that which he can do best. To education when the minds and hearts of the children are open to the teacher who is trying to form their character. To religion when there is no longer any possibility of dispute as to its broad dogmas, since the truth about the states after death and the great law that governs the world will be patent to all eyes. Above all, how far easier it will be then for the evolved men to help one another under those so much freer conditions. The possibilities that open before the mind are as glorious vistas, stretching in all directions, so that our seventh round should indeed be a veritable golden age. Well for us, that these grand faculties will not be possessed by all humanity until it has evolved to a far higher level in morality, as well as in wisdom. Else should we but repeat once more under still worse conditions the terrible downfall of the great Atlantean civilization, whose members failed to realize that increased power meant increased responsibility. Yet we ourselves were most of us among those very men. Let us hope that we have learnt wisdom by that failure and that when the possibilities of the wider life open before us once more, this time we shall bear the trial better. Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.com co.uk that's hermetic science enterprises.co.uk and as a lot of you know i've uh, talked with the publisher lenny on the podcast before including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the patreon and uh seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now, hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk.